welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax updates to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Conference in San Diego, California, where I'm thrilled to have Georgia Maffini on the podcast. Georgia is part of PwC's Global Tax Policy and Transfer Pricing team in London. Before joining PwC, Georgia was at the OECD, where she was the Deputy Head of the Tax Policy and Statistics Division. Georgia, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you finally on. Thank you, Doug. Uh, great to be here with you. So, Georgia... Before we get into Pillar 1, can you tell listeners something about the town you're from in Italy? What is it? And give us the Visitor Bureau's pitch. So, Doug, I come from a very small town called Villanova Sull'Arda. Villanova Sull'Arda? Sull'Arda. Sull'Arda. Yeah. All right, my it's, Italian's weak. It's a very small river okay. in the north of Italy. And uh, our listeners should really visit because the opera composer Giuseppe Verdi spent the majority of his mature life uh, in Villanova. You can visit his villa where he composed many of the operas that everyone knows. And I'm sure uh, our listeners will recognize a lot of the arias that have been composed in Villanova. All right. Well, we'll make sure listeners say that Giorgia Maffini sent you. Exactly. And I assume we can get some good northern Italian food and, and pasta. The food is pretty good there as well. So two reasons to visit, right. Giuseppe Verdi and food. I'll put it on the list. All right. So let's move on to the tax portion of the podcast. It's been almost, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, two years since I dedicated a podcast to Pillar One. So before listeners tune out and we get into the nitty gritty of Pillar One, why should people be listening to this? Why is Pillar One important, Georgia? So, Doug, for tax expert, experts, Pillar One is really a revolution. So why is that a revolution? For two reasons. The first one is that Pillar One, in a way, changes the way in which we allocate profit across jurisdictions for a taxpayer. We, according to Pillar One, we don't rely anymore, at least for a part of the profit, on the arm's length principle, but we rely on a formula, so a real revolution here. But there is a second reason, so we don't allocate profit where, for example, the ideas have been created or where we have uh, people you know, carrying out specific functions. But the new profit will be allocated where the customers are, where the final customers are. And this is essentially very, very new. It's really a revolution in the way we allocate profit. So for tax nerds, really, it's unmissable because it's changing the parameters through which we operate in terms of where do we send profit? Where do we allocate and, profit? And this is the podcast for tax nerds. So your, your comments are, are well taken. Um, you know, one of the things that's, and you know, I should also caveat that I'm not a transfer pricing expert. We have a team of transfer pricing experts that I work and I've had a, a number of transfer pricing folks on, on the call or on the, on the podcast. But 
you know, one of the, the things that is surprising to me, and we'll get into this as we get into amount A and amount B, is that, you know, I thought that we had just gotten Brazil on the arm's length standard, and now you had already started with uh, this is potentially going to change that arm's length standard. So we'll, we'll unpack that. Maybe another kind of level setting question is that pillar one, Pillar two, we have dedicated a lot of time on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast to Pillar two. Um, why is this a two-pillar solution? How does Pillar one fit in with Pillar two to give listeners some context? So it's a good question, Doug, in the sense that Pillar one does something that is completely different from Pillar two. So from the technical perspective, it's difficult to bring the two pillars together. Pillar one, we said, allocates income with a new principle, destination and a formula, destination being the profit is where the final customers are. Pillar two instead works in a way with the old system. We tax uh, taxpayers where they have a physical presence. It doesn't matter very much where the customers are. So they are doing two different uh, things uh, technically. So we can only understand the two pillars together if we look at the politics of the project. And so we go back uh, to probably 2018 when the U.S. proposed what then became Pillar 1. And, and you were at the OECD at the I time. I was at the OECD at the time, and that was called the Marketing Intangibles Proposal. And because a lot of European multinationals have a lot of those marketing intangibles, probably European multinationals would have been, at least in theory, losers from the application of the marketing intangibles proposals. And so at that point, two European countries, France and Germany, propose a pillar two, which is a minimum tax that mm -hmm. instead goes a little bit more in the direction of, of protecting the taxing rights and strengthening the taxing rights of Germany and, and France. So I think you, we can understand the two pillars together only if we look at the politics, not at the technicalities or not at our tax word. Yeah, and it's, I think it, that's just a great point um, to, to reflect that a lot of this has, is based on politics necessarily than, than the underlying tax policy, or maybe even set away to be a bit more generous, that what, what often starts as good tax policy, politics has, can sometimes get in the way of what otherwise could be tax policy. I couldn't agree more, uh, Doug, on this. And I think we see all the politics converging into this massive complexity that are pillar one, pillar two, amount A, amount B, then you bring it all together. I think the complexity is really uh, the sign that the, the negotiators were trying to address the politics. Really. Right. So what I want to do now is kind of unpack uh, amount A and, and amount B. And, you know, I think one of the themes that we're going to see is just, just the amount of complexity involved. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the complexity associated with Pillar 2. And we'll, we'll talk about the burden on taxpayers that they have should um, Pillar 1 actually happen. But let's start with amount A. What is it? And more importantly, why don't we have a better acronym? I don't know why we don't have a better acronym, Doug, and maybe we could propose one, uh, but 
it, it's it's very confusing. Yeah, we have we, all these clever acronyms for pillar two, and then just for pillar one, it's just amount. Amount. I think uh, maybe the idea was to keep things simple, but it, the plan didn't go well. Keep the name simple, but the rules complex, exactly. as opposed to the the acronyms complex and the rules simple, exactly. which I'm not sure I would describe pillar two like that. But so so what is amount A, Georgia? How does that amount work? A? So the uh, uh, the idea is very very simple because amount A is essentially a share of the profit, of the global profit of a taxpayer that will be allocated to where the final customers of that taxpayer are located to market. So the, the allocation is at destination. How do you calculate that amount A? Again, uh, very simply, very simply uh, you take um, the profit above 10% return on sale uh, for you know the global profit uh, of a multinational, and then you take 25% of that, and that's your amount A that will go to market, with some exceptions, because in some specific cases you have to reduce that amount A, the amount of the pool of profit on which you calculate amount A, but the idea overall is very, very simple. Profit above 10%, and then you take 20% of that. So the concept is, is simple, right? And, and you said 25% of residual profit, but what is that based on? Like, what, what accounting system, or how is that, what, what is that based? So, like, in, in uh, um, in the case of Pillar 2, you start from your consolidated statement. So that's, again, your base. Then you make some adjustments. Some are in line with Pillar 2, some are not. So, again, a new tax base here. And then you get to your profit. But that's not really the complicated part of Pillar 1. The very complicated part of Pillar 1 is how to shift profits from the jurisdictions where the profit is today to the market. And there is a very complex mechanism to identify the jurisdictions that should give up profit and how much of that profit they should give up. That's very complicated. Uh, All right, so let's, let's dive in a little, and I don't want to get too deep because there's plenty of other policy and we want to get to amount B. But So what really makes this complex insofar as how that, that profit is, is, is allocated? So essentially, what, the mechanism to identify these jurisdictions that need to give a, a profit um, first makes us identify a set of jurisdictions. Um, this set of jurisdiction will be divided in four groups, tier one, tier two, three, tier three A and tier three B. Okay. First of all, you have to identify in which tier your jurisdictions can fall in. Then one jurisdiction can fall into different tiers. And if they are in, say, the second tier, they will not give up all their profits, but only up to a threshold, a threshold that is based on a return on depreciation and payrolls. This is something very new. It's not wow. a return that we have used before, so we need to, to also get used to that. And then, so the mechanism is really complicated. You have to go through these four groups multiple times, uh, essentially. 
Yeah, so um, the o an OECD official said on a recent webinar, and I'm going to paraphrase, that the framework entails an upfront systems build that would identify these data points that you just described in the computations, including the revenue sourcing, the jurisdiction, RODPs, I think is the acronym. So we, we do have some acronyms. Um, and that once this was done, systems would do the rest of the work in future years. And I, I wanted to get your reaction to this because we've also heard the OECD make similar comments with respect to, to Pillar 2. And I really feel like there's an underappreciation amongst policymakers with respect to the complexity that's involved. First of all, they say just setting up these systems. Well, these need to, this data needs to be collected and processed on an annual basis. And I think there's this misconception that well, once you do this once, then it's just you push a button and set it and forget it. And we know, particularly for Pillar 2, and it sounds like also for Pillar 1, that that is not the case, is that you're going to need to continue to identify data and maybe data that, that hasn't been collected in the past a lot of this is not in one standardized system, right? So companies have their ERP systems, but particularly for Pillar 2, you know, we think maybe 40 plus percent of the information is in an ERP system, which means that 60% is outside. From what you've described, a lot of this information is going to be well outside an ERP system, and you're actually going to have to look at client or user data. Um, and so, you know, what, what is your reaction to the OECD's comment that, you know, well, you, you set up the, the system and then, and then you're, you're good to go? Uh, Doug, I'm really happy you brought up this comment because I also picked up on this comment and I, I was really surprised because whilst I was listening to, to the podcast, uh, to the webcast, I was looking at an Excel file that had some, you know, modeling of Pillar 1. And it's quite difficult. It's true that there are some uh, elements that keep on, you know, coming back in your calculations. But as you say, you have to get those elements that are completely new and we are not used we don't know sometimes where to get those data points those elements and at the beginning we thought that we could leverage a lot of what we have done for pillar two we will be leveraging some of the data points we use for pillar two but that won't help us very much because it's another system, right. it's another tax base. So I really do not agree with that statement at DOACD. I think it's much more complicated. There is a very complex first step in the sense of building the machinery that can do all these calculations, you know, identify the jurisdictions that give up prof, give up of profit. And then, for example, you have to calculate how many withholding taxes you have paid in a jurisdiction. And you will have to re reduce your uh, profit uh, as a function of those withholding taxes paid uh, in that jurisdiction. Those numbers are not generally readily available in the systems that we have used so far for a tax return. So, um, then we will have to calculate a marketing and distribution safe harbor that also has other components. So uh, it's going to be another very long journey like the Pillar 2 journey. And it, they are not it's exactly the same journey. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, 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 com the comparison is fair and that the complexities from a systems perspective, if anybody from the OECD is listening, is first of all, there's the data. Where do you get the data and the information that you need to do the calculations, which has its own sense of complexity. And we've dedicated a number yeah. of podcasts just to that issue. And then there, once you have the data source, then 
taxpayers still have to do the calculations, right? And so that the calculations are complicated as well. And so it's, it, there's two elements to any time that we're introducing a new type of tax system. It's the data and it's the calculation. I think sometimes those get commingled, yeah. but both need to be solved for taxpayers to be able to comply. And if I can say, Doug, for me, the uh, pillar one calculations seem slightly more complex than the pillar two calculations. Um, so I don't know whether it's because it's new and we are starting mm. thinking about that, but I'm pretty sure they will not be easier than the pillar two calculations. Well, that is frightening because you know how in the weeds I am on the, the pillar two calculation mechanics and they can be mind-numbingly complex. And it sounds like, you know, particularly with amount A and we'll, we'll get to amount B. Um, you had mentioned um, marketing and distribution profits, safe harbor. Yep. So can you talk a little bit about safe harbors and then are there any exceptions, any industries that that are accepted? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that we should discuss with our listeners. The first one is that uh, not all sectors of the of the economy are in scope. So there are some major exceptions. So for example, defense, financial services and the extractive industry are largely largely outside the scope of pillar one. But also there is an exception within the rules whereby that is called the domestic um, uh, exclusion. There are also some, an additional, some additional exclusions uh, for domestic profits. So if a taxpayer has an activity within a specific country, there is a closed system, if you like. For example, you produce and sell within the same jurisdiction. So the profits of that jurisdiction will not go towards the um, uh, profits that then allow you to calculate amount A. So a few exceptions uh, around uh, um, uh, amount A, even if the scope is quite wide, mm -hmm. because in principles, with those three exceptions, all industries are in the scope of amount And A. what are those, the thresholds for who's in scope? So very important, Doug, the threshold is essentially you are in scope if your global turnover is about 20 um, uh, billion euros uh, and at the same time your profit margin is above 10%, which is high for right. the economy because we recently looked at some European data in terms of returns on sales and the average in Europe in the last 10 years has been around 4%, 4-5%. It's slightly higher in the US, around 7-8%, but 10% is quite high. And, and do, we, do we know roughly how many companies would, would be in scope? I mean, that high profitability, 20 billion euro, those are really big companies. Yeah, so we think it's more or less 100 companies and under than 10, a bit difficult to to, to understand, but that's probably uh, a figure that is not too far from reality, okay. we think. So how legally does this get implemented? Mm -hmm. um, like how do jurisdictions, how would they go about actually legally implementing this? Uh, so that's, uh, Mount A, because it's a reallocation of profit, mm -hmm. it means that we are reallocating taxing rights across countries. To do that, we need treaties. 
Okay? And in this specific case, because every country needs to accept at the same time and change the treaties at the same time, not every country, but you know, a mass, a certain mass of country, countries, we need a multilateral convention okay, that countries need to sign and then the multilateral convention needs to be transposed into local legislation by every single jurisdiction. Which is a, a, a big ask, particularly for countries like the U.S., exactly. which if listeners listened to the podcast a few podcasts ago, the, the, there are still challenges getting treaties ratified and passed through the, the U.S. legislature. So, so what is the, the timing for this? Or maybe I should be more precise in asking the question is, what was the intended or proposed timing for What's this the, by the OECD? The official timing. Yes. We can talk about the official timing. So the official timing was initially to sign the multilateral convention in the first half of 2023. Now we are in the second half of 2023. That's, that yes, has been signed. No, it hasn't. So the, um, let's say the deadline has shifted to the second half of 2023. But I think, Doug, especially after the discussions that have been held in the U.S., that the signature of the multilateral convention will stall a little bit. I think we all need more time to understand these rules. What do they mean for taxpayers? You know, how are taxpayers going to react to those? So probably we are going to look at 2024. Yeah, and we are in the back half of the second half of right. 2023. So we'll we'll keep this we'll keep an eye on things, and we'll come back to that comment as a hook for listeners to stick around on recent comments from uh, Secretary Yellen. Um, but let's go to Amount B now. Um, what is Amount B? So Amount B, another very simple idea. Uh, it's essentially a fixed return for baseline marketing and distribution uh, activities in a market. Um, amount B has been essentially should be in line with the arm's length principle, so very different from Amount A. Amount A departs completely from the arm's length principle. Amount B instead wants to remain within the arm's length principle, but we are told given that the application of the arm's length principle is a bit difficult for some countries with low resources, it has created a lot of disputes for taxpayers, we want to simply this part of, say, of the application of the arm's length principle. And so we will come up with a table of fixed returns that taxpayers can apply under certain circumstances if their activities are in scope of amount B. And who is in scope? So, good question. We don't <laughs> know yet. So it seems that the scope is much wider than the, uh, the scope of amount A. So not the $20 billion, not 10%. Not the $20 billion. We could think, we could, you know, assume that the scope is the same of uh, uh, pillar two, maybe 750 million euros as global uh, turnover. But it seems that it would... But that hasn't been formally proposed? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. And then... 
Tell me a little bit about that the, the pricing methodology for, for, for our transfer pricing listeners. I don't want to get too deep, but can you share a little bit about, because this seems to, to be also a, a pretty big change. Exactly. So I'd love to go into the details of how we have got to uh, what the OECD calls a pricing matrix. The reality is that we have no details on how the econometric, the statistical analysis has been conducted. So a bit of a question mark there. And I think it's important and that the OECD at a certain point tells us how they have conducted their econometrical analysis so that we can replicate that. And okay. I think that will build trust in the system if we could be there. But essentially, the outcome of this unknown uh, econometrical analysis is a table where there are different returns for different sectors. And we have three sectors but also different um, level of returns on, um, for different returns. Okay? Okay. And once you look at a return and your sector, you will identify the cells in which you fall. Okay. And, that's, um, uh, and in the cell, there is a specific return on sales, which is very simple to use in a way. It's true that that has been simplified quite a bit. But then, uh, for example, it's unclear on how the OECD has got to those three sectors. And some taxpayers will find that some of the returns are higher than what they apply today under the arm's length principle. But in a way, if it's really a simplification, taxpayers could agree to trade off, say, precision with simplicity and maybe pay a little bit more for that simplicity. So we, we've heard this, this is going to simplify things, and I'm a little skeptical just generally when I hear policymakers saying that they are going to, to simplify things. Maybe talk a little bit about, does this mean additional documentation that's going to be required, for example, or is this, will this replace documentation? Because I think, you know, one of the points that I've made and, and on the podcast and is that there doesn't seem to be a tendency for policymakers to ever eliminate any tax rules. We just, instead of scraping the paint off, we just keep adding layers. Exactly. So how does this work for, for, for documentation? Is this really going to simplify taxpayers' transfer pricing documentation requirements? So Doug, as you have, you know, forecasted probably here, there is no going to be no simplification of the documents you need right. to, to submit to the tax authorities. It seems, at least the proposal, it's now that you will need to have some additional information in your local file around amount B, so a little bit of an increase in, in the documentation you have to prepare. And per se, this wouldn't be a huge issue, I think, but the context is wider and the context is one where we have pillar two, uh, we have pillar one and then now also a bit more of compliance, let's say, in terms of documentation around, pillar, uh, around amount B. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, an additional burden. Mm -hmm. It's probably not big per se. But it's another step. It's just in you this stack it up, journey. put it on the put it on the yes. list for, for for tax departments to to deal with. All right. So, um, how does how would amount B get get implemented by jurisdictions that sign up? So the proposal seems to be to put the wording of amount B into the transfer pricing guidelines. And in particular, the plan was to introduce the language around amount B in the transfer pricing guidelines by January 2024. 
Now, there are still some big questions around Amount B, in particular, how do we define the scope? And there seems to be um, still a lot of negotiation to be done among countries to get to the scope to a scope where everyone agrees. So that tells me that again January is probably optimistic. January 2024, 2024. would be optimistic. And when you talk about the guidelines, just to, to clarify for listeners, you're talking about the OECD guidelines for transfer pricing, and this is something that I've thought we thought talked a little bit about in the context of Pillar Two. So my understanding is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, like I think Australia, maybe for example, automatically incorporates the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines, but I'm guessing other jurisdictions, and I think about the U.S., um, that they would need to actually bring that in, presumably through regulation or statutory or whatever the jurisdiction that's implementing. Obviously, just because the OECD puts out the guidelines, each respective country will need to figure out how they incorporate that into their domestic law. Exactly. There is a lot of variation across jurisdictions, and as you say, Doug, uh, the fact that something has been incorporated in transfer pricing guidelines doesn't give us any assurance that that then that part of the guidance will be implemented in domestic countries. So I'm sure we'll see delays and um, non-homogeneous uh, implementations of yeah, and, amount B. And that's the big challenge, I think, for taxpayers that want certainty, that want consistency, particularly in transfer pricing, which the goal, right, is to create consistency exactly. around the around the globe. And to the extent that we have different adoption of different rules certainly makes it challenging for, for taxpayers. All right, so we've got amount A, we've got amount B, and I'll be honest, I'm a little scared to ask this next question because I know you have a PhD in economics. I'll, I'll remind you, I'm a tax lawyer, not an economist, but what is the economic impact of, of Pillar 1? And who are the winners? Who are the losers? Just, and I know there's been quite a bit of analysis. Uh, this is a very important question, Doug, because I think it gets into it gets us from tax to the geopolitics of these important agreements that Pillar One and Pillar Two are. So clearly, if we are looking at Pillar One, we are looking at a system that takes profits from even a small country that has produced, say, a lot of ideas that can attract a lot of talent, and send that sends that profit two large markets. A large market could be the US, but there are also a lot of emerging economies like India, China, that are very large markets. So the profit, amount A, is a new system of allocation of profit that, if you like, follows the geopolitics a little bit with these countries like India and China becoming more important, so they claim uh, additional taxing rights with respect to what they have today. So clearly, uh, Amount A goes very much in the direction of rewarding very large markets uh, versus smaller jurisdictions that before were, you know, say, producing ideas and again, attracting talent, attracting functions, attracting assets. And one of the criticisms, and, and this has been well written about, is that given the size of the, the requirements, and this is more with, with amount A, um, that 20 billion, the 10% of profits, that is this really a, a tax on really just large U.S., particularly tech companies, without the focus on the tech, the tech sector specifically? Yeah, so not in principle, because in principle, on paper, we just have a very large threshold in 
terms of turnover. We have a high profitability threshold, so not in principle. But it turns out, as we said before, that the U.S. has very large and very profitable firms. So if we are looking a little bit at which companies are in scope, it turns out that about 50%, maybe slightly more, uh, of the companies in scope are U.S. companies. And if you like, this is a result of how the economy in the U.S. is. But Well, I would like to remind that the U.S. definitely does not represent 50% of the entire global economy if we represent 50% of the in-scope companies. But your point, I think, and not to put words in your mouth, is just that those largest multinationals around the globe disproportionately sit in the U.S. And I as a U.S. citizen, I will, you know, advocate that I the 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 tech a lot of the tax policies have helped driven that, including our R and D and some of the others that have really helped build that that underlying infrastructure and, and those companies. But it does, you know, seem like a, a disproportionate number of the potentially impacted companies sit in the U.S. relative to the the overall global economy. And I think that some observers do agree with you. Right. So. Um, to, to get for Mount A, just to dive into the specifics and talk a little bit about kind of adoption and, and country specific, and at least 30 countries that make up 60% of targeted global countries will need to sign this treaty, this multilateral convention that yep. you mentioned, to, for it to be able to, to come into law. And so where do countries and legislative bodies stand on this? And maybe we'll, we'll start with the U.S. Um, we're recording this here. It's the beginning of November um, in 2023. Um, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently made some comments that, oh, I won't spoil. What, what, did, what did Secretary Yellen recently said and what does this really mean for the process? So Secretary Yellen said two important things. First of all, we need more time to think about Pillar 1, and we could not agree more. I think we really, as I was saying before, we need time to understand the effects and how that is applicable. But also um, Secretary Yellen said that we should, whilst we are thinking about Pillar 1, we should, um, uh, you know, stop new DSTs to come, you know, into the system. And um, uh, so it, it, it seems to tell me that there is still a negotiation going on at the OECD with the U.S. being, of course, a very important player, because if you run your numbers without the U.S. transposing the multilateral convention into its domestic legislation, essentially a mountain cannot happen. And then, so that's the U.S., and the U.S. is going through a consultation currently, right, to be able to seek input from taxpayers, but maybe what about Europe? In Europe, General. we don't have a consultation, and European countries seems to be happy with what we have at the moment in the multilateral convention. And I think there is a bit of a, an attitude of wait and see in terms of what the U.S. will be doing. But uh, European countries seem to be on board with Pillar 1, which also means that some of the um, uh, European countries that have a a DST will drop the, the DSTs that they have introduced today. And what about, I'm going to come back to the DSD because that's an important point, kind of save that for, for the end because I think that's really relevant for, for listeners. But what about Asia, specifically the largest economies? So thinking about Japan, China, India, and maybe not necessarily the largest economies, but also where the, the most amount of potential future consumers or yep. users may sit. Exactly. 
So, Daga, I think that gen it, there is a lot of variations, but countries like India, for example, have made a lot of reservations in the multilateral convention. Uh, reservations that if we were to summarize those reservations, they go all in the direction of allocating more profit and so more tax revenues to markets than what we see currently in the multilateral convention. So again, it seems to me that even if countries like India, but also Colombia, Brazil, seems to be on board with the broad idea of amount A, it seems to me that there is still some negotiation to be done before we get to the final agreement. China, on the other hand, has remained quite silent okay. uh, in terms of amount A. And now China, if 10 years, even five years ago or 10 years ago, China, will, we would think about China as a large market. I think that China is now transitioning to being more of a country that hosts uh, uh, headquarters right exactly like in like the US so there is a bit of a trade-off there I'm an headquarters so I generally hold a lot of profit but I'm also a big market like the US so there is more thinking to be done for this type of jurisdictions around amount a and whether they will really gain or lose revenues under amount a so we've saved what I think is one of the most important things for last. So hopefully listeners are still tuned in, but digital service taxes. And so one of the points and commitments that the OECD had made with respect to amount A was that the digit, this would eliminate or end the digital service taxes. And we've already seen Canada, for example, has proposed a new DST um, to potentially be implemented next year. What is the status without, we don't necessarily need to go by country, but what is the status of, of DSTs? Is this really going to implement DSTs or is this really going to eliminate DSTs? And, you know, I've got some concern that countries that maybe don't sign on will continue to do DSTs. What is your, what are your views on that? So I think that in the multilateral convention, it's very clear that some countries will have to drop their current DSTs. Or, or, you know, similar measures. These countries are India. Then in Europe, we have Spain, France, Italy, uh, Austria, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So these countries will have to let the DSTs go. But uh, we know that there are other measures around the world, especially, for example, in Africa, um, in Kenya, in Uganda, um, other, in other places, in Asia, for example, in Nepal, where there are measures that are similar to DSTs, but interestingly, these measures do not appear on the list of the multilateral convention, on the list of measures that will need to be dropped. So there is a question here, Doug, of... Will all DSTs go or maybe if you design your DST slightly different than, you know, the definition that we have in the multilateral convention, maybe you can keep your DST? It's a big question mark. So in terms of the how successful amount A will be in terms of eliminating these turnover taxes that are really bad for right. the system. Yeah, and a really big concern, um, understandably, for, for taxpayers. So maybe we'll end with, um, Georgia, what, what should companies do now to, to address the challenges of Pillar 1? Because we're in a state of flux. We have some consultations going on. What advice generally do you have for, for taxpayers that want to get involved in the process? 
So I think that because I feel the discussion is very much open on amount A, especially in the US, I think that taxpayers should do, first of all, try to understand the multilateral convention. Very difficult. Some of, some of the taxpayers do not have the time. Um, we have put out a lot of communications, little summaries around amount A, so they could look into that. And then once they have understood that, do some modeling, even high-level modeling, and with that modeling, engage with policymakers because I think there is no understanding of how complex this exercise is and really what the implications in terms of, you know, sending revenues from the US to other countries or vice versa are until you get really get down to the calculations. Well, a common theme that we have on the cross-border tax talks, whether we're talking about US tax reform, whether we're talking about pillar one, pillar two, engage with policymakers, do the modeling, understand the implications, and really be a part of the process. I exactly. think that's great advice. Exactly. All right. Well, this was great having you on, enlightening about uh, about pillar one, and uh, we'll, look, we'll continue to track the developments. And as things start to get implemented, we'll have you back on and you can share where we are. Thank you, Doug. Thank you very much for having me. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Georgia Maffini, a London-based director in PwC's Global Tax Policy and Transfer Pricing team. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.